You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. And I'm JR, and I have no idea what's going to happen now. You have it? Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Oh, well done for rattling the paper all the way through my introduction. What? <sighs> Never mind. You finished your introduction. Then I... I picked up the paper. <laughs> oh, okay. You usually try and do things like that quietly. No, no, I did it lousy on purpose. Oh, did to you? To prove that I'm getting the paper out to tell you what we're doing today. It's one of his, his bucket list things. Is it? Yeah, you just want to wrap paper. This is part part of Matt's plot against me, isn't it? It is. It it was your idea. No, it wasn't my idea. What? Should we say what we're doing? You can say what we're doing. Okay, we're doing something that JR doesn't know that we're doing. We do, it's mutiny. Yes, it's mutiny. So we had a list of... Actually, so what's happening sauce, is they are going to surprise me with a topic tonight. So I'm going to be caused to okay. talk for 60 or 120 or 150 minutes about something completely blind. So what we're going to talk about today is uh, what makes us fans and what effect that fandom has had on our lives since then. Oh, okay. That's, uh, I was so, expecting something a bit more... Um... Cerebral. <laughs> no, no, I was expecting something a bit more like, oh, talk about the costumes designs on Gallifrey over oh, right. the 1980s <laughs> or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I was yeah, yeah. going to, so, so because, because Simon and I came up with independent ideas, mine were all, we should talk about costume designs or we should talk about David Whittaker. <laughs> and then Simon comes up with the, with the really nice sort of, this will create nice anecdotes and the emotional things. So how come you're talking and he's not? Because because this way we get to do both. So we talk about ourselves and we do the nice fluffy anecdotal things. No, that's but what I mean. I mean, if it was this idea, how come you're the one explaining it? Because I started talking first. Okay. And because <laughs> and because I'm, I'm, I'm the one closest to the microphone. I'm just like we're supposed sitting to. back basking in the glory that I had the better idea, so... Oh, I gave you the idea in the first place, according to Matt, so I'm taking credit for this. <laughs> you get, yeah. and, and there you go, that's how it works, folks. There we go, there's the pecking order. Okay, so we're talking about what it is that makes us fans. Yeah. And I suppose what we're doing is we're talking specifically, individually, personally, about the three of us, yes. in the hope that that kind of is something that mirrors everybody else's experience too. Yeah, mm. yeah, mm. and also looking a bit at what fandom has done in general, I think. How well, evolved and... the first thing you can do is go back and pinpoint the moment at which you became a fan. Okay, but also there's also a question: is 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 it inherent in somebody's personality for them to become fanatical about something? Mm. I think, and I don't want to sound sexist here, but I think it's a gender thing, as mm. as mm. much as anything. 
Okay. Yeah, because although, you know, and, and the trouble is, if you say something like that, people saying, ah, he's being horribly sexist because he's generalising. Mm. Yes, you tend to generalise about things where something is generally the case. And they'll point out exceptions to the rule. And yes, of course, if something is only generally the case, there will be exceptions to those rules. Yeah, so what you say is, obviously there are female fans, but it tends to be... Except I think this is a, genera- a generational thing, because and I'm, not, I'm not joking about people's ages anymore. I think in the 1970s and maybe the 1980s, um, parents in those years tended to bring up children in a slightly more delineated way. So boys were into boys stuff and girls were into girls stuff. Now it's a bit different, I think. I think girls I and boys are being brought up. I think there are more girls coming into fandom. Mm. Yeah, and so but yeah, I don't certainly think... with the new series and with superhero movies and I comic don't books. think and that's... I think that's a, that's yeah, a but I... nurture thing rather than a nature thing. I don't no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think boys still like boys things and girls still like girls things. I think the programme itself is more for girls well, I think I think the makers of the program have recognised how to make it appeal more universally. Exactly. But I don't think fanness is necessarily a boy or a girl thing. Um, I think girls girls have been fans no, of but... particular things, and now it's just it's just that I think the things that they are making now, the people making them for commercial reasons, but also because it's in the modern world recognize how to make things that appeal to both genders they yeah things appeal to both genders but it's how you express your fanhood of something and i still think that is broadly speaking divided across gender lines you go on a doctor who forum 90 percent of the people posting on a doctor who forum are blokes. Mm. You go to a cosplay but I, but competition. But I think yeah. that's, that's, you go yeah. to a cosplay competition, and the gender split is much more even. But than I think it is that, on... I think again that's a generational thing. So on the forums, you've still got the forty-plus-year-olds or the thirty-plus-year-olds. You who obviously are, don't go on forums mostly, very much because there's there's guys. a lot of there male are, there are, forum but, goers but because, who are but, under those ages. But nowadays. logically, but logically speaking, there are. If if there was a, a time when there are more guys and girls getting into Doctor Who, if that was a a, a period thing, <clears throat> and then and then it started to appeal to girls a bit more, well, then logically speaking, you're going to have more guys on the forum because forty plus there'll be a greater number of guys. No, and then because below forty, it's a more even split. Well, you didn't let me finish what I was saying earlier on. Yeah. And if you had it done, that would have rendered most of what you've said in the last two minutes obsolete. Okay. In that I was talking about the gender divide is not about these days whether or not you're a fan, but how you express that fandom. And this is where I think the gender divide comes in. I think that, generally speaking, male fans have more of a collector gene and a more notational brain, where female fans will, generally speaking, embrace the emotional part of the programme more. So... And, you know, again, I am generalising about something. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, and I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to this, but if you look at the kind of people who have complete collections of all the DVDs, complete collections yeah, of all the books, yeah. complete collections of all the audio plays and everything else, yes, a majority of those people will be blokes. And a majority will be older. 
is what I'm saying. Because uh, no, they'll because... have, have been collecting for longer and have more money. Yes, okay, a majority of all of those will be older, but if you look at all the ones who are under 25, still a majority of the under 25 ones will be blokes, Matt. Okay. That's, I mean, it's just... It's, it's a logical fact. Well, <laughs> it's <clears throat> science. But, but, so but obviously did... there is a grey area in between the two. Yeah. 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 How did you but get, how did people... you, how did you first become a fan, Jay? I know, because I think you're trying to dis, dis, I'm trying deflect to get, us away from no, an to interesting your, topic gender, of conversation. Gender isn't it? politics. But, but I don't, I don't know because I'm not being dismissive of either gender. So no. I don't see it's a conversation we can't have. Okay. But I do think that, and I mean, you know, this is just nature. The way we're made well, is that we react differently to things. Well, I mean, maybe the the fanness expresses itself differently amongst the genders. Yeah. But if you look at something like Star Trek, the vast, it was something like 70, <clears throat> 70% of fans of the original series of Star Trek were female. Oh, they're, that's they're interesting. The ones, they're the ones that... Well, then the question is... For, they and they do the express themselves in a very similar way to the men, don't they? Yeah. They well, the question is, though... They collected things... Well, the question is then, what does Star Trek do differently to Doctor Who? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a nationality thing. Maybe well, yeah, American, it could well be a American thing. America at the time had a different approach to fandom than than Britain. Yeah. Know. Well, I think actually you're making a mistake in that sentence there, and I and I don't and I don't think it's a mistake. I think okay. the way you phrase it there mm. yeah. tells a lot about how you think about, or not. Don't mean you, but I mean no. in general how we think about this. That is problematic because you said, I can't remember exactly what you said. It was only about a minute ago. You said, how does America behave towards fandom or? Oh, well, um, yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, when you become a fan of something, you don't become a fan of something to become a part of fandom. No. You like something enough that you want to make it a bigger part of your life. Your identity. You're yeah. expressing it. So I'm afraid yeah. about so this. So what stage yeah. do you become a fan? Well, think? this is what I'm saying. You become a fan at the point where you become proactive in your ownership of the property. Yes. So, so Henry Jenkins calls, them text, calls it textual poaching. Yeah. Which well, is it's good, not. Which is, you know, which is a good way of describing it. Well, the way I expressed it was, and this was a personal thing to me, but I think it's true for a lot of people, Doctor Who's a program that's on when we were kids. Doctor mm. Who's a program that's on once a week on a Saturday night for 25 minutes. And for 25 minutes, you got to experience Doctor Who. And then for 167 hours and 35 minutes, you had to wait for the next episode. The first time you go out and buy a copy of the magazine or the copy of a Target book, you're actually able to take Doctor Who home and Doctor Who mm-hmm. is on your time. You yes. choose when it happens, mm-hmm. as opposed to it choosing when you can watch it. Yeah. And that's when you become proactive in the relationship. So my fandom started the first time I saw uh, a rack of Target books in a shop and went home with one. I think I think it's it's also to do with it's not just to do with taking it home with you. It's taking it home with you. And then you start drawing pictures of the TARDIS. You start drawing pictures of Daleks. You start writing your own story. See, I don't think you, you need you, to because think, a lot of people don't. I think no. that's it. But that's an unusual way of engaging. So if you're just reading the book or watching the television series, then I don't think that that means you're not necessarily a fan. You're just a consumer of Doctor Who. Maybe it's to a be a, to be a fandom, it has to be you have to be engaging with what's happening creatively. I think. Oh, no, but are you kind of, of a... making it part of your personal wallpaper? 
You know, I if never... you're taking a book and you're putting it in your room, then that's becoming part. You're actually saying, but that's right, what that's part of my. But that's nest. what you're supposed to do with the book. That's what normal people do with a book. Not yes, just fans. but Matt, the difference is that's a book of a television program, whereas something like Stig of the Dump or mm. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz weren't books of programs or films. They just happened to some of them be made into programs and films. But you weren't taking the book of Stig of the Hope Dump home because you'd seen it on television until maybe the television version was on and a few mm. people did then. But do you know what I mean? But no, no, because I've, I've, I've got books. I've had books. Uh, the starter, the Star Trek, um, extra extra universe books, and the Star Wars extra universe books. But I'm not a fan of Star Trek or Star Wars. If I'd got, if I started drawing pictures of R2D2, or if I do something creative that actually expands the world within my own imagination, mm. it's not just yeah, about reading. Or I, I think never that's, wrote that's what Doctor Who for. stories or drew Doctor Who pictures as a kid. So are you saying I wasn't a fan? I think I think no. there's a switch in the brain where you decide subconsciously or consciously, like you say, uh, to to invest in that program or that thing more. But I think it's the a tipping point. But I think it's it's about sorry. Yeah, no, no but I, I think the... say it's like if, if I went to see Ghostbusters and I went out and bought the adaptation, the novelization, but I wouldn't say I'm a Ghostbusters so, fan. So it's, it's not just about reading reading the thing and no, it's about... watching the thing. It's about engaging it. And you might not yeah. you might not mm-hmm. have written stories or drawn things, but I'd imagine you'd you'd want at some point to find out what happens behind the scenes, say, maybe buying the magazine. And yes, and about this that, is what I'm talking about. about ter- I'm saying the point production. at which but, you start engaging yeah, with it yeah. is the start where you proactively start engaging with it is the beginning of the process, Yeah, which but, doesn't necessarily have to go anywhere, but the process can't begin until you do that. Yeah, but proactively engaging with it is more than just reading the target books or watching the TV series. It's, it's choosing it's, when it's you either, engage with it's it. It's either creatively engaging it, drawing mm. pictures, mm. writing stories, or it's finding out what happens behind the scenes or starting to learn about the authors of the target books. So there's there's two. There's the, the whole sort of... Doyle and what Doyle Yeah, and but you're talking. Yeah, but you're again. You're dividing this because there are people who are fans of things who don't bother finding out about authors and who don't worry about what happens behind the scenes and they a, engage with it completely. But there, has, what's to, there has to there has to be something more than just watching the series and going. That's a jolly good series to make somebody a fan. I think. Yeah. I, but it doesn't have I, to be an engagement with the behind the scenes of the no, program. No, I think it has to be either that or it has to be a creative engagement. Examples. I think it has to. You have to take it one step further from just watching it or reading it. I think it's about engaging. You talk about engaging with it, reading something and watching it isn't engaging with it because that's a one-way thing. You have to. Is that the difference? Is it? It's a two-way. Well, it's it, a two-way yeah, road. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think that's, so in, in that's essence, the collecting the books. Fun. I think you Could entirely be. missed my point about... No, I think you're misunderstanding what fandom is. <laughs> oh, be... thanks. No, no, but, but because I've got, I've, got lots of, no, I've got lots of books and I'm not fans. I've got a complete collection of Phil Rickman books and I'm not a fan of Phil Rickman because well, I don't... Why have you got a complete engage... collection of his books then? Because I like his books. But buying, therefore, buying his books. Right, makes, you're makes talking about you wouldn't, you wouldn't seek to but, get his autograph, and be, you wouldn't. There has to be yeah. a difference between somebody who likes something and somebody who's a fan of something. There has to be a step change, I think. Yeah, and I think we all agree that we're all fans. So here. is it a relationship? Yeah. that you have with yeah, that thing? yeah. 
and maybe maybe even it's just an imaginative relationship where you actually lie awake at night and you start thinking about how to organize the unit stories or you read Sherlock you read Sherlock Holmes and you start to put the Sherlock Holmes stories together and Sherlock Holmes was the birth of fandom Sherlock Holmes was the first the first the first set of set so of it, fictional okay. set that created I think fandom the issue and here that, that was because is that you're expecting fans to be as creative or as intelligent as you consider yourself no but no i'm just if somebody is neither creative nor what you might broadly describe as intelligent you're saying they can't be a fan no what i'm doing is i'm looking at the history of fandom and working through from sherlock holmes because sherlock holmes is the first the first fictional franchise mm -hmm. to have fandom and that fandom manifested itself in letter writing campaigns to try and get Sherlock Holmes back. That's an act of engagement in the fictional universe. Oh, I see, universe. yeah. Okay, it's interesting. And then people like Dorothy L. Sayers and Robert and Ronald Knox, they started writing um, fictional biographies of Sherlock Holmes. That's an extreme form of fandom. That's, that's, yeah, like, that's, that's like, like the other a end. tiny but, fraction but even, of the people who you yeah, would describe as the yeah, fans. But, but what I'm also saying is that there has to be some sort of creative, creative interaction with the series mm, beyond mm. just absorbing what's happening. Linearly. No, I don't think there has to be a creative one. Okay. Well, then you're just consuming the series. You're not. You're yes, not but engaging. It I with think it. quite a lot of fans would quite happily say, "I'm a fan, and what I do but is it... I consume it." Yeah, I think okay. you're talking about uh, two entirely different sides of fandom. There is a side of fandom the word, that's though, creative, fan, fanatical. That in that infers that it's something slightly more. There has to be a way that the fanaticism manifests itself. Hmm. Beyond, you know, if if I I would be I could describe myself as a fan of the new series of Battlestar Galactica, mm. but it's fan in a different different term. I like it and I enjoyed it when I watched it, mm. but I wouldn't call myself a fan. I would call myself a fan of the West Wing because I've engaged with the West Wing creatively, because I've written a, a thesis about it, and that is the effect. But you can't was, say that people that who haven't written my theses about it aren't no, fans. No, which is why, which is why I've been expanding the definition mm -hmm. to include uh, really? looking it's... carefully at what, looking at other things Aaron Sorkin's written, uh, going to bed at night, maybe even at its very basic level, going to bed at night and trying to rank the stories in your head. That's that's an that's probably the the, the basic level of of intellectual or creative engagement. I don't even think a lot of fans probably even do that. Well, I, I think if you don't do any of that, if you don't have any intellectual or creative engagement in the series, then you're probably mistaken in calling yourself a fan. But I, you're, You just like the series. No, but I don't know. This is starting to it's sound not, like it's horrible a, snobbery. No, no, it's not. It's you're not. Using... I, I don't think, I don't think, and I might be wrong, there is anybody who would call themselves a fan of Doctor Who who wouldn't in some way rank the stories that they've watched, or in some way think, what's my favourite Doctor Who story ever? That's surely, that's the basic. If they don't do that, if they okay, just... Let's if put it back to maybe its most subtle level. My yeah, but what was that author you just mentioned? Phil Rickman. Could you name your favourite Phil Rickman book? Um, yes, possibly. But you've just said you're not a fan. Um, well, maybe I am then. But I think that's probably a basic level. Yeah, I just think that... There but are... I, I haven't actively, actively carefully thought about ranking the Phil Rickman books. I know. Which I don't book think I all fans of a thing necessarily do. I think fandom comes in many, many forms. 
And I don't yeah, think... I, I describe I don't think, them. Yes, but I don't think a creative or intellectual <laughs> engagement with something has to be one of them. Okay, I, I don't think... If you don't creatively or intellectually engage with something... I, you know, that's a, that's a fairly... Know, that's a fairly, starting to sound like a, somebody off the forums. No, but it's, it's not. It's about, it's about a two-way street. It's about seeing something more in the story. That's not. It's not a controversial thing to say. It's what. It's is it, what is, it, is it simply the expression? I don't. I don't know. I mean, pulling this back, my father was a. Uh, he probably would have called himself a fan of Les Paul. You know, the musician, the guy who basically invented the electric guitar and multi-tracking and all that sort of thing. And he would watch every television program that was on about him, but he didn't sort of seek it out. But I think he probably would have called himself a fan. So if he watched television programs about the the musician, yes then he probably was a fan because he's seeking to find out more things about he him. Seek he's it out, he's yeah. engaging in, mm. in something other than the music or the the equipment that he's produced. Mm. On so the other hand, else. those programmes aren't made for fans. They're made for general viewers. Yeah. So, so? Well, then not everybody who's watching those programmes is a fan. But if he seeked, if he seeked out those mm. programmes mm. because of his fondness for Les Paul, then that's if he actively but tried then, to. But tried my, to my father wasn't somebody who would express it publicly. He wouldn't no. write to anyone. He always said, "If I could have spoken to him, I would have said, yeah. blah blah blah.' Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've really inspired the, my the, life. The bottom line. So does so, that? Is that the thing? Is it expression? I thing? think is it, it. I think a fan has to do yeah. something more than a, a normal viewer. It has to be something more than a normal viewer. There mm. has to be something that distinguishes a fan from a normal viewer. And it's as, as simple as something like almost like a psychological relationship. Yeah, yeah, but that is that's by definition intellectually or creatively engaging, right? With the, with the program, that's what it is, mm. or the, the mm. book series. I think it's probably less less dramatic than it sounds, and less <laughs> con- less controversial than it sounds. I'm not I'm not putting putting certain group. I'm not. I think you generalizing, know, ostracizing huge swathes of fandom. I know. I, no, think, I, th- I think I'm categorising slightly. Well, I think you're generalising because I think there are people who would call themselves fans who don't of any I, I, text. But I don't think I'm Matt's saying that, that they literally, you know, go out, go to to the nth degree to create something which is to do with Doctor Who or something like that. It's just it's, a, me, it's quite a subtle thing. It's it's there's a spectrum of engagement. Yeah. So it can it can be very, so much like you were talking violent. about the genders. There's a grey area as far as what fanaticism. Yeah. Is. Are you telling me you never you never drew pictures of a Tardis or a Dalek? Or I you, once you never... drew a picture of Tom Baker at the age of sixteen. By which point, I've been reading the Target books for eight years and calling myself a fan for at least five. So, yeah. so you didn't grow up drawing Daleks or you know writing stories or no. okay. You know, I didn't write my first Doctor Who story until somebody asked did you me read to the, about four years ago. Did you read the magazine? Yes, from this an early is the age? point. Well, the magazine, if you buy and read the magazine, that would make you a fan. Because you've and that's what I sought, said. You've actively sought out. No, but that's different from, from the Target books and the DVDs. You've actively sought out something that's about behind the scenes. 
you've gone beyond what no, a normal consumer when television. When I saw the magazine, it wasn't really about behind the scenes. There were bits of it. Well, it was from oh. issue three because I've got issue three and it's and it yeah, talks about was, then you've got was, Jeremy uh, Bentham. It might not. Loosely. It might not have been great, <laughs> but it's still talked about. It's still talked about. I thought this was going to be a lovely chat. I really did. And it's still uh, with Doctor Who. It's still talked about. Things. Yeah, but that was until Matt told me, "No, you weren't a fan when you started no, reading saying, the Target books." No, I'm saying you were a fan because you read the, the magazines. No, this I'm is, saying I became a fan when I started reading the Target books. Okay. I can. But then you were, you were actively if, sort of seeking them out and yes, yeah, I'm building up a collection. That as the exact point the in my life. That's a creative being, thing, though. Building up a collection of them. Well, did you did you organise the target books that you collected, or did you place them randomly? Did you did you place them in doctor order? Oh, is that creative? No, I'm looking for I'm looking for something something creative that you did with your fandom when you were younger, rather than just reading the books. Matt, I will pinpoint the moment when I started reading the target books as the moment when I became a fan. Whatever else, why? Why? Whatever else I may have done afterwards is something that was latent. But, but why, did you, and, why, why did Let you me begin? finish my sentence. Okay. It's something that was latent and inherent. And so, yes, the capability was within me to draw Daleks and to write stories, as obviously I've drawn Daleks and written stories much later on. But I wasn't doing it back then. But the thing that I was doing back then is that I was engaging with Doctor Who on my time rather than on its time, and that is when the switch turned in my head that turned me into something, some body that was that was going to embrace going out and finding out more about the series. Now, my point is not that those things aren't latent or inherent in people, but that that's not the point at which the switch is tripped. The switch was... I could have started wanting to find out more or collect or put things into order about anything, but it was Doctor Who and reading the Target books, making my own time on a Friday night or a Saturday morning mm. to have Doctor Who on that wasn't at 5.15 on a Saturday night was the moment when and that what, changed. What I would suggest is that's not when you became a fan, that's when you became hooked. And that led you to become a no, fan. No, I was so, hooked so, from the age of four on so, the telly. I didn't miss an episode. So my first, what hooked me with Doctor Who was City of Death in 1979 when I was two years old. But I wouldn't have said I became a fan this is until, okay. until the series seeped into my imagination and started to come out in ways other than just watching. So you've just said that City so, of Death was able to hook you on television at the age of two, but I wasn't able to be hooked until I bought a Target book at the age of eight. No, no. What I'm saying is, when you bought a Target book at the age of eight, that might have been the, the hook that led you to fandom. I don't think that's, what, that's where you cross the line between being a, a reader or a viewer into being a fan, I think that led towards that point. I think it's when you started thinking more deeply about how it's made and how the books are written and how the different authors think. I so think that's saying, when you became a fan. So you're saying I think, that... I think you're wrong in, in thinking you became a fan when you started reading the Target books. I don't think it's, it's that. Any more than I became a fan at the age of two when I watched City of Death, even though that's my first memory of life and that's when I got hooked with Doctor Who. I think it's when I started actually reading the magazine and started looking behind the scenes and also, yeah, I've, I wrote stories and I started drawing things because I'm doing something other than just consuming the text. 
That's my point. I think it's perfectly valid to just consume the text and consider yourself a fan. I think you're mm-hmm. defining it far too narrowly. I think I'm defining it by the way people have defined what fandom is. I think it's a, it's a, te- it's a technical thing. Well, no, I don't think it is. I do, not in the way that well, you're it's, saying it's a it spe- is. It's a specific fandom. Is a, or a fan and fandom is a specific thing. It's not a, it's not a fuzzy thing that fans have created for themselves. Well, precisely. So it comes from, it, what I'm saying is it comes from Sherlock Holmes fandom and people actively engaging. So yes, there's, but, a whole, there's a whole line of study. But are you saying that only the people who actively engaged in this letter-writing campaign or the two people who wrote these biographies no, no, you're, were you're, fans? No, no, you're, you're reducing things. I'm saying that there's a broad spectrum of things that make you a fan, but it has to be more than just consuming the text. It has to be more than just going reading out or watching. going and buying a book is not just consuming the text it's, because it's, it's a, a television criti- programme. It's a critical uh, part. And what no. are you doing so there? You're, you're crossing you would, a level. You would go into a bookshop and you would actively seek out the Doctor Who books. Yes, and, and I think and that's... that's, and, that's a key, I, I think and that's a key part of getting a book to read it. That is part of the consumption yeah, of the book. Yeah, yeah but I think the first thing I, I think is to do with thought processes. I think above all... J.R. sought out the Doctor Who books and therefore he had yeah, become... Yeah, but I've, I've sought out other books. I've sought out other books and no, that doesn't make me fans. To get a book, you mm. have to... You have favourite books and you go out and you seek particular books. Mm. But that doesn't make you a fan of those books. That makes you like those books. Yeah. It's when you, you effectively engage with them in a way other than just reading them. Or you give something back. Or you go to bed at night and you start creating you start extending the story i think that's there has to be a difference between consumption it's very tricky isn't it because you're you're effectively stamping a mark on somebody's personal choice you know they know their own minds as to where they place doctor who in their priorities i mean it's like the weetabix cards come along i'm sure you know doctor who lollies every time you'd have a doctor who lolly there is there is i accept a, a, there's a there's a difference between self-identifying as a, a fan yes. and the definition of fandom that exists. Right, okay. That For me, the definition of fandom that exists is more interesting because it means you're doing something other than just reading a book or watching the TV. Mm. Self-identifying mm. because people say, oh, I'm a big fan. You're I'm saying big, you're going, I'm when you go fan. overground with yeah, it. Yeah, you can you... say people, cause, because the term has become, right. has become fuzzied. So people now say, oh, I'm a big fan of that perfume. Mm. No, they're not. Mm. They just like the perfume. Mm. They, they don't try and recreate that perfume. They just go out and buy the perfume. Mm. You can still mm. say, I'm a big fan of that perfume, and it still means something. Mm. But it's taken the term fandom, and it's actually reduced it by, by taking, its, take the, taking the definition out of it, and it's mm. just made it more generalised. Mm. So this is what's interesting about this discussion. Because See, I would say the, I would the say, argument actually is trying to hone in on something. I would say, as far as my fan fandom is concerned, it didn't happen till very late in my experience of Doctor Who. I would watch it on a Saturday evening and really enjoy it a lot. Of the time, I'd get too scared to watch it, mm-hmm. so I I would back off from it again. I'd even bought the magazine and loved it. Yeah, but I don't think I became a fan until Five Faces of Doctor Who when I actively went out and sought every Target book. And suddenly thought, actually, I really love this. So, and, and, I, and I think you can dip in and out of it, because I did. So for, for you, becoming a fan meant becoming aware of the archaeology of the programme, aware of the history of the programme. Probably, program, yeah. And yeah. actively wanting to find out more about what had happened yeah. 
before so you're not before a, that point i like dropping it, not consuming and, and, and things like the weetabix packets and the weetabix cards yeah. i loved and fascinated yeah. by them but that yeah. could have been but that wasn't a relationship with the program no um meanwhile i got into star wars and i was definitely a fan of star wars absolutely right. obsessed yeah but the the doctor who thing didn't kick in as i say till about 81 peter Davison coming in and well, star wars was inter- interesting because I was a fan of Star Wars through the toys, so I was a little bit too young to become obsessed with the films when they came out. Mm. But the toys came out at just the right time. And actually collecting toys and playing with toys, Mm. so it's not the buying of the toys and it's not the collecting the toys, it's actively playing with the toys because basically then you're creating your own Star Wars stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I played with the Star Wars toys and I'm not a Star Wars fan. No, no, no. no. (laughs) No, but there's... But there's there's a difference. It's not a then. It's not a either all. In a sense, there has to be mm. a, a font. Well, I don't know. do you know what I had? Did interesting... you did you, uh, did you play with Star Wars toys and pretend they were Doctor Who figures? Because I did no. that. Did you did you build Tardises out of Lego? No. Pretend to fly them around. No. Well, I'd say that I'd say that was quite unusual. <laughs> to, to, to be perfectly, honest, I mean, I'm not. When I'm not... I was a kid, there were no Doctor Who toys. No, I'm not, well, there was no Doctor no, So when, when I, I played, kid, yeah. I didn't play Doctor Who. No, I, I played with Lego, though. And one of the things I did with Lego, like, every time I'd build a small TARDIS and a mm. big spaceship that could scoop the TARDIS up. More and like that, a, because TARDIS, Star Wars. TARDISes are perfect. When I had the Star Wars figures, quite often I'd pretend they were Doctor Who characters. No, I mean, uh, when I said like in Star Wars, I meant like the... Oh, destroyer sucks in the millennium. Well, actually, no, actually, it was um, it was more like in Trial of the Time Lord when the space station sucks in the. Okay. the I think that's where it came from. But that again, that's that was and that was an expression. I was a fan by then. See, this is interesting because I remember being at school and being obviously obsessed with Star Wars, and I remember having by accident my newsagent get me the same copy of Star Wars Weekly twice, and I remember giving giving it to a friend at school, somebody who I thought was a best friend, gave it to them. Then the next thing, within a week, somebody else was walking around with it. And I said, well, why have you got that? He said, oh, because such and such gave it to me. And I, and I was devastated. <laughs> devastated that I'd handed over this Star Wars comic to someone who I thought was a fan who'd handed it on to someone else. And there you go. There's the levels. <laughs> well, we because, it, because now with Star Wars, all of a sudden with the new films, people have come out of the woodwork Yes. And this is where you, you start treading on the ownership thing, this mm. this yeah. whole thing that goes on. Because people have come out of the woodwork and said, yeah, I'm a Star Wars fan. The same as they have with Doctor Who, with the new series. They've said, yes. I've always loved Doctor Who. Yeah. And you think, well, where were you? And that's, that's, the, that's the migration of the term fan. I've always loved Doctor Who. Yes. And I've always been a fan of Doctor Who are two different things, mm. I think. Mm. Because the term fan has migrated. And in fact, in the modern day with... Um, the Marvel, the Marvel movies, and yeah, yeah, you've got you've got franchises that are suddenly, suddenly built to create their own fandoms. It's quite a cynical thing. So, mm, so mm. Uh, the Hollywood studios and the BBC have recognised what sort of things create fandoms, and they right. they produce them. I think we need to introduce something else here, and okay. this is something that I was going to bring up right back at the start when football. I was talking about gender. Yeah, football. Right. Uh, okay. Well, no, no. I'm inter- I'm fascinated yeah. by this because. Well, a obviously... football fan. What does a football fan do? Yeah. They pay to go into a ground to watch a football game, yeah. and then the following week they'll do the same again. 
and in between they'll probably talk to other people who also pay to go into the football ground to watch the game yeah. about what went wrong and what could be better next time. Mm. And broadly speaking, other than maybe buying scarves and things like this and programmes, broadly speaking, a football fan won't be creative in the ways that you say you think, are, that you need to be a fan of Doctor Who to be. I think there are two things. Firstly, I think there is a distinction between sports fans and media fans. I think no, there's a, there's a difference. Sure. Well, there is, because one's a sport and one's a, one's a creator. But they're both but things also, you just go in but also, to watch. You also, pay to go in to watch. But also, I think a lot of people who define themselves as football fans at least remember the scores from the previous, the previous few matches. They know where their team is ranking on the league tables and as soon as you start it's it's mathematically engaging in a mathematically rather than creatively engaging but it's still an engagement with their team and where it runs they could probably list the players who are in their team so that well yeah that in a sense has taken them one step by beyond. reading the target books i could name the characters in death to the daleks yeah, i didn't have to there's a different if you could if you read the the target books and knew uh, the books that were written by Terence Dix or Terry Nation. Well, not Terry Nation, bad example. Malcolm Hulk. Malcolm Hulk. That would mean you you were you were reading the target books in a way that they weren't supposed to be read. So you were supposed to read the target books by absorbing what's going on, the story, and reading what's inside them. As soon as you start looking at the outside of the target books and thinking, oh, this is another Malcolm Hulk book. He did that book. That's very similar because they've got they've got two opening chapters that weren't on screen. Mm. That's intellectually and creatively engaging with the series, and I think that's the same for for sports fans. Do you know? I've got a vague recollection of being asked a question at school about what are your interests, and I said Star Wars, and, and the teacher said, "Well, that's not an interest, is it?" <laughs> a little did she know. <laughs> well, she, yeah, she'd be laughed down now. Yeah. Cause, you know, mm. yeah, but back then that was kind of standard. Mm. So what? Mm. So what? We could move it on and look at what fandom's actually done for us, rather than the, the naughty issue of what fandom is, because <laughs> we've been talking for <laughs> thirty-seven I do, minutes. I, I just think it's a personal relationship, and I think you almost make a subconscious decision in your head: Are you? Is this something that you consider to be part of your identity I, I, and part of what gives you a reason to... I think, I it, is, think, I think can... it is a personal relationship, but it has to be a relationship. Mm. And I think a relationship has to be a two-way street. And this okay. is my point about buying the Target books and saying that as soon as I started buying the Target books, I could have Doctor Who at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning instead of just at the time when the BBC said I could have a Doctor Who... That becomes a relationship. And whether you think that that relationship in and of itself is defined as fandom, and I agree with you, it's not, because you can do that with any book. I think that's the point at which your fandom is identified and at which you go on to do the other things. So you're saying you're saying it's when you've taken possession yourself of yeah. the story. Buying that first Target book was the moment I became a fan. Now, that's not the moment I started doing fanish things and being a fanish person but it's the moment at which i became a fan and all those other to things do on doctor who at that time isn't it anyway yeah so there's a... and all those other things went from being things that were latent and probably never would be accessed 
to the point at which they were latent and at some point would be accessed. And I'm saying there are some people out there for whom those things will never be accessed. But they're still latent and it doesn't mean they're not fans. The irony is nobody listening to this podcast would be in that category because they're listening, no, they to, wouldn't. But they're listening mean... to a podcast which is a creative act. It's an engagement with the series. But that doesn't mean so... there aren't people who aren't. You can't. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> well, I, I... I, I mean, I disagree. But... Okay, I'm going to leap in here and say I don't identify as a fan of Doctor Who. Right. Okay. Which I've said before on this podcast. Dung. No, yeah. yeah. But I mean... Uh, no, I understand. I understand where you're coming from. I, I, you're going to have to unpack it for me. Because <clears throat> I've seen today you've written, uh, you've ranked your favourite Doctor Who stories on Facebook. You've yeah, written, but you've I also ranked my favourite seven letters on Facebook today. You've written the fan audio play. Only because I was asked to. You've I'd... published, you've edited books uh, written by fans about Doctor Who. And yes, you've written essays but... based on being a fan of Doctor Who and those books. And you've got an awful lot of toys as well. You've got a lot of toys. <laughs> yeah, okay. In what, in what way aren't you a fan? But of the more Doctor you're Who? talking, the less tight, the less you're allowing me to explain. <laughs> sorry, go on. Sorry. My identification, no, no, not as a fan, which, but I, and okay, I'm not, and I'm not being entirely serious when I say that. But what I'm saying is, and I think. This is why I'm able to do the You and Who books and why I'm able to do the column in the magazine and why I'm able to do this podcast in the way I do the You and Who books and in the way I do the column in the magazine and in the way I do this podcast is that I like to think I've got just a little bit of a slightly different perspective on it Mm -hmm. than as a pure fan perspective. And I think not identifying necessarily as a fan with a capital F is what allows me to have ever so slightly different perspective. What? And I think, you, I don't know, but I think That's you can tell. That's a personality tell. thing, isn't it? I don't think it's in your personality to express yourself in the way that your stereotypical fan would... would. What I think you are is a closet Acker fan. Acker? As in fan. Amy Acker? No. Who in, used to be in Buffy the Vampire no, Slayer? No, Acker Bill. As, in, as an academic fan. So you're, oh. you're interested, you're clearly interested in the way that Stephen Moffat works and in the way television works and in what happens behind the scenes and this is what this this is what an academic fan and this is, it's a it's a term for this sort of crossover thing but you yeah, I'd, take that yeah, I'd take that as a massive compliment yeah no 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 yeah. that's fair enough and that's true and i think that's my i've got the same approach to fandom as you do yeah but I, but i think that that's possibly what's affecting our thinking about what makes a fan is that it's sometimes difficult to divorce what you are mm. from what other people might be. Mm. Mm. It's all down to priorities, isn't it? Whether you <clears throat> prioritise the thing you're a fan of in your life over other things. Anyway, about two minutes ago, you said, let's change the angle. Well, let's, let's talk about... Because otherwise we'll talk for seven let's talk hours about, so about what a so fan we're, is. we're in one form or another... We're all we're all fans sat around the table. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can agree on that. Oh no, so, yeah. When I say I'm not identifying no, as a fan, I'm not being entirely no, I know serious. Exactly what I'm you saying. I have a perspective I, that's slightly different. Because I think. Where, when I was a child, as being a Star Wars fan, then I was your stereotypical fan, where I would buy everything that had Star Wars written on it, and I would 
try and get every figure and I'll be completely obsessed by it, draw comic strips about it, everything. Um, but now I feel like I can take a sidestep on it and I can look at the process and enjoy it for what it is, not get to, oh, you, I got so obsessed, I think I've said before on this podcast, is it took me like two or three attempts to see Return of the Jedi because it got too wound up and kept having panic attacks to finish the film because I was so, yeah. so into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm obsessed with it. But there's, a, there's a process behind So my process of being a fan has moved from writing stories when I was a kid, drawing the TARDIS, you know, watching videos and and trying to construct the history and loving the, the, the Lance Parkin book on the history of the universe. And then I moved on as I as I went to university. Mm. And that, that happened at just the right time mm. when Doctor Who had been off air for for 10 years and fandom and the magazine and fan writers had started growing up with basically a dying audience. Mm. So they were starting to write at a level that was actually useful for me being at university. They were writing about textual criticism and semiotics and structuralism. And I even saw... We've uh, turned into the unfolding text. Well, no, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But that's a really, it's, all, it's actually a really good book. I'd, yeah, but also, also, I mean, the Doctor Who magazine had articles about French philosophy and Doctor Who in it, and it, that hit me just at the right time where I was, where I was starting to study. And in a French way, philosophy. <laughs> and in a way, at the end of my first degree, I wrote a dissertation about Doctor Who because. I was doing a medieval. I was doing medieval studies as my degree, as you do, and I decided what should I do for my final dissertation? Shall I do um, Robert Henryson or shall I do Robert Langland or Chaucer? No, because I know most about Doctor Who. I know the stories like the back of my hand. I've got a huge pile of magazines which are, you know, primary sources. So, what did your medieval history instructor think of Doctor Who as your final well, dissertation? It's, it's, the, it's the way it's the way the degree worked. Is it's in the School of English, so the final dissertation is completely open. So you have the choice of of doing whatever subject you want to, and doing that on Doctor Who ultimately led to the next degree, and then the next degree, and ended up with me writing about American presidents on Hollywood cinema and the West Wing. Because I did that dissertation on Doctor Who, there's a through line from my Doctor Who fandom through this dissertation to effectively the the end result of my academic career, which is now over before before it's even started. And I I see that's that's the evolution of my Doctor Who fandom, mm. and I think that's what Doctor Who's given for me, and Doctor Who <clears throat> fandom has given to me. So, what are we changing the subject to? What is, Doctor Who, what is Doctor Who fandom given to us? Okay, by which you mean... What is Doctor Who fandom given to you? Not fandom as, as, a, as an, an entity, as in what? Your what being, being a, a Doctor yeah. Who yeah, yeah. fan? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's given me a lot more to draw. Certainly, but do you know what the the fandom as such didn't really express itself? I do you know what I was a closet fan. I'll be completely honest. Yeah, embarrassment of the series. Didn't tell anyone. No. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) I didn't buy a huge amount of videos. Every now and again, when the mood took me, I used to pick up a video. um, And certainly when the DVD started coming out, I started buying those. Bought Five Doctors DVD as soon as it came out. 
because I was quite early to the game on DVD. Me was, too. Yeah. Wasn't everybody so, a closet fan in the 1980s? I, gu- I guess so. And so I, it was only with the new series that it kind of, I came out as such. I went really. to school during Colin Baker and there was no way I would say that I liked or even watched Doctor Who mm. when I was at school. Mm. No. I was basically the, I was a, a child of the abused fandom. I went one better. I stopped watching. Well, <laughs> yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, but what, what's it given? Well, I mean, coming right up to date, it's given me a career. And that's through social media. So that's yeah. suddenly, it's basically you've come out in a very spectacular fashion as a Doctor Who fan. Yeah. You've got t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but also you're, this is what Facebook and, and Twitter has, has brought to us and the forums and the expansions, the conventions. It's been a funny thing really because I've had the fandom, I've had the interest in the show, got talking to Lee at the radio station which in mm. turn got me on this podcast and then obviously having the abilities to do the artwork, it's like, well, this is what I can offer fandom. So yeah. there's that relationship. It's like yeah. I can be creative around it and, and in the same situ- you know, same way as JR, being asked to write a story. So it's a continuing engagement with the se- creative engagement with the series, but one yeah. that's evolved yeah. exponentially, exponentially mm. because you're now, you've now been formally absolutely published in a proper Doctor Who spin-off well, yeah, unofficial. Yeah. Okay. But what what I always found fascinating about it was the mythology. Um, now I'm interested in the nuts and bolts of it because of the writing side of it, but I was always fascinated by the mythology and the history of it. Mm. So that was the bit that I, it just seemed so meaty. It was a lot to get your teeth into. And now with the writing, you kind of get to augment that in your own way, don't you? So, That's an interesting diversion though the mythology because at the point where you enter into engaging with the program and start thinking about the history of the program you're thinking about the history of the program as a fiction Mm. but for us three certainly not for everybody but for a lot of people and probably for most of the people listening to this podcast because after all why would they be listening to this podcast otherwise this particular podcast what you're talking about is how and why things work in the series. Mm. That's what we do. We talk about how and why things work. Yeah. And when you first start going back into the mythology, and this is probably also why Celestial Toymaker had a good reputation and the Gunfinders had a bad reputation when nobody could experience either of those things. But now that we can experience both of those things, or at least to a degree, their reputations of more or less swapped but the thing that draws you in is the on-screen fictional history of the program and it's through a learning process about that on-screen fictional history that you start to in your mind realize that certain bits of the program have certain kind of specific interests Mm. and then you realize that those specific interests are because of the people making the program not just through some random sort of bunch of events that cause the doctor to land his TARDIS on such and such a planet Mm. and that's the point at which you start to well like you said it could be through starting to buy the magazine or necessarily not but you'd have to have some kind of 
means by which to gather this information. But I mean, even if you don't have the information, you can see that during the early 1970s, for instance, the Doctor's stranded on Earth, and all of a sudden there are political parallels with what's going on in the world. Yeah. You don't have to be a grown-up to understand that if Doctor Who's talking about miners striking while miners are striking on the street, that's more than just a coincidence. So you can see these things, you start to see these things, and I, to, going back to my journey, seeing as kind of, I suppose that's where we came in, buying the Target book and being able to read it at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning or whatever it was I said, as, as opposed to watching it when the BBC said I had to watch it, that's your first step. And your second step is starting to, as probably through the Target books, as you buy more and more of the older ones, starting to realise that at different periods the, the programmes had different preoccupations to buying the magazine and realising the names of the people through whom these preoccupi preoccupations were born. And, you know, there's a bunch of stages. And I, as we said, actually, off, off air before um, we came back, because we've had a cup of tea break, you know, there's, as Matt said, there's a spectrum of things. Mm. And, you know, my contention is somebody could be involved in 50% of that spectrum and another person could be involved in the other 50% and never the twain would meet. But what I'm saying is, I suppose, in order to be a fan, what you have to do is climb onto that spectrum and not stop, but mm. keep going around. Yeah. If yeah. you consider the spectrum to be a wheel, you've got to find a point where yeah, you climb onto yeah. the wheel and so, keep moving around the wheel. And it doesn't matter how far you get, mm. how much of the wheel you cover. I think it's the the desire to keep moving around the wheel yeah, it's inter it's interesting. There is a there is a progression from, as you say, from watching the stories to being aware of the fictional universe, the broader fictional universe, to be aware of the broader production universe. They're just simply and, the but, fact that people some, are making it. Some yeah. people grow up being more interested in the fictional. I think Lee's more interested in the fictional universe than well, the actual production universe. This is why I bring up the literary agent hypothesis, because it's about the only way that Lee can truly get to grips. Whereas I think, for, for me, I I basically learnt, through Doctor Who, I learnt how television was made, mm. and through that I learnt how films were made, and through that I learnt about... How babies were yeah, made. But I also I also learnt about... I learnt... I, I essentially learnt how to do a degree in English before I did my degree in English because I was analysing Doctor Who for five, ten years before I did my degree in English. Mm. This is this was the first sort of my intellectual and creative foundation and I think it's that intellectual foundation. This is, why, to... this is why I have, and this is a slight side step, but it's, it's relevant, I think. I've got an issue with people. When you start to talk seriously about Doctor Who and you start breaking it apart, and you start talking about political influences. Some people then just say, "Yeah, but it's it's just it's just for fun. It's just for fun. It's just it's not just a children's art. It's just entertainment. Why are you why are you break it down like it was mm. like it was Shakespeare or like it was Dickens? It's just for fun. Mm. But well, that, Shakespeare and Dickens just yeah, wrote for fun. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. but also it's not about." what it is it's about the way you look at it it's always about the way you look at it I, you can say the is. same with pop music you can take yeah, the, yeah. what some people would consider to be the most basic pop pop song yeah and pull it apart and look at it and you know there's there's as complex things going on there as there yeah. is in your 
progressive rock or, or anything like that, really. Yeah. It's just a far more condensed version of it. Yeah. But equally, in much the same way, in the same way as like, like a throwaway pop song might be trivialised, mm. is as far as people's lives are concerned, yeah. it's as important as any it's, bloody Dire Straits it, album or many, any... And it's, the, it's almost more important because absolutely. the things that are just for fun or the things that are mass market yeah. are the things that the most people they are placeholders in, to in people's lives. See, yeah. yeah. And if you can get a message of some kind through a medium that people don't expect to find a message in, mm. they're not likely to recognise it as a message. But by absorbing it, mm. they will take it on board, even if they don't realise they have. So for, mm. for me, mm. for me, if I'm ever in a conversation, which I have been occasionally, which I try to avoid on Facebook, about Doctor Who, where I'm trying to... I'm, I'm not talking about you, but I'm trying to... I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm, I'm going slightly further than other people would or I, I should about a Doctor Who story and somebody says oh it's just for fun that's like throwing an anti-intellectual grenade into the conversation it's a bit like Godwin's law on Facebook where somebody automatically compares you to Nazis or brings up the Nazis it just flattens the conversation yeah it kills yeah. the debate mm. and then that's the worst thing about mm. a debate is if somebody just flattens it and it's it like on the Brexit where people said well we've had the vote get over it yeah yeah it just yeah. it just kills the debate, and the debate is the the whole thing. That's why the first half of this podcast was so was really useful, even uh, though we were arguing. The first half is going to be edited. Out. Even though we were arguing, <laughs> I get no, because, the first half. because it's the debate. <laughs> it's going to be a forty minute podcast. It's the debate that gets the interesting stuff, I think. <clears throat> but yeah. no, I'd be interested to hear feedback from um, listeners on that first conversation because there's probably stuff we. Didn't I have no doubt on. that won't. That's not finished with yet. I'm sure that's <laughs> going to raise its head again. Going back to something we did say, though, you asked me about writing Doctor Who audio plays and stuff. Mm. I've never, ever written a Doctor Who story that I wasn't asked to write. No. Well, it, apart from I, I sent in an entry for that big Finnish competition. Mm. But then again, I'd never have sent in that entry if there hadn't been a competition. Mm. So what do you mean? Uh, what I mean is... I've never written anything that I wasn't prompted into. Well, actually, I only, I only did once. When I was young, I wrote a Zygon story set on... I wrote a sequel to Terror of the Zygon set on the spaceship. But what I did do was when, when I was doing my GCSEs, there was GCSE English for me. It was, it was 100% creative work. There was no essays to write. We just had the option to write creative work. So I would write short stories and plays... And most of the short stories I wrote ripped off Doctor Who stories mercilessly. I grabbed fragments of dialogue. I wrote one that I just ripped Ghostlight off, bits of Ghostlight, and just retooled Ghostlight and swapped the orders one. So that's a form of, of Doctor Who fiction, but retooled into something else. See, I've always been completely the opposite, and this is probably why I struggle to write a bit, but if I recognise that I'm doing something that I recognise from somewhere else, I'll try not to. And this is why I find it really hard. When I say I've never written any Doctor Who fiction that I've not been prompted into, I've just suddenly remembered that way back about six or seven years ago, I wrote an entire series of Doctor Who as if it had been set in America. But even that was prompted by a conversation where somebody yeah. said they could never relocate to Doctor Who to America. Mm. And I wrote this thing to prove that you could. You've got to be in your bonnet and say yeah. to prove you could. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I was completely taking the piss. Yeah, okay. And it was a complete piss take. But the serious intent, and talking about smuggling serious intent in, is just to prove that it that you could do it. Mm. I think mm. there's a... And with, this is fan fiction, I suppose. I think 
borrowing elements and fan fiction hom- is to prove that X character can have sex with Y character, isn't it? Well, oddly, Beverly, <laughs> keep talking whilst there's a chapter in no, no, Matt's no, thesis that. about it. Matt's <laughs> brought his thesis along. It's a big thesis. I've just whopped it out on the table. I think the only creative Doctor Who I'd done before that was comic strips because I used to draw comic strips but make them up as I went along. So it was never a script. It was never scripted. It would just be. But nearly every Doctor Who story that I did involved a regeneration because oh. that was the bit I was obsessed with. Yeah, you see, and I'll, going off at a tangent, Stephen Moffat uses regeneration because obviously that's something he's interested in. Mm. And I've said this before again, but it's one of the tools of the programme, so there's no reason not to use it. Mm. Mm. You know, I don't okay. know. That's like saying, okay, I'm going to do some gardening, but I refuse to use the hoe oh, any more than once every three years. <laughs> okay, do you want to hear? No, the, the but te- you carry on. The man. ten types. So this is the the fan fiction, the ten distinct areas of fan fiction that Henry Jenkins suggests that exists. This Who's is Henry Jenkins? He's an academic who wrote Textual Poachers. So he founded the the idea of... He actually worked with one of the guys who wrote Doctor Who the Unfolding Text on a book about fandom, about Star Trek and Doctor Who fandom. And he wrote a book about fandom in general called Textual Poachers. And this is in the 1990s, early 1990s, when it when fandom had been going... Sort right, of enough explanation. Give had, us the had, 10 things. Okay, one, recontextualization where fans write scenes taking place within a television episode. Mm-hmm. Two, expanding the series timeline where fans write about characters' backgrounds or events leading up to a televised story. Three, refocalization where fans write about minor characters rather than the lead protagonists. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Moral realignment where fans write about the villains in the main text rather than the heroes, which Mm -hmm. would be Moriarty rather than Sherlock Holmes. Well, that's Daleks in TV21. Yep. Genre shifting, where the genre of the main text, such as science fiction, is changed to another, such as romance. Oh, hanky-panky in the time. No, this comes later. Crossovers, where two main texts are brought together into one story. That's obviously Star Trek Doctor Who. Yeah. Char- oh, right, character yeah. dislocation, where characters are given different identities or names and shifted from their usual situations. Fifty Ooh. Shades of Grey. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Because it's that's Twilight. Yeah. 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 Uh, Personalisation, where the writer of the story, the fan takes part in his or her own story. Oh, oh God. We've all seen that one. Emotional <laughs> intensification, where moments of extreme emotion from the main text is expanded upon. That, that's more of a subtext one, though, wouldn't you say? I don't know, well, I don't know. I mean, is it distinct? And finally, eroticization, where characters from the main text are featured in erotic situations. I think those last two categories are subcategories of earlier categories. By and large, this bleeds but, onto okay, artwork yeah, as well because if you go on DeviantArt, there's a lot of. I just brought it up because it was interesting. Yes. <laughs> well, why not? We're talking about fandom, aren't we? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, so what are our appro- what are our approach? So, your approach to fan fiction is actively trying to find something new. Is that no, 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 no? I was talking about approach? I was talking about non fan fiction. I was talking about when I'm just writing fiction that's got nothing to do with okay, Doctor Who. Okay, so what's your approach to fan fiction? What's your starting point? I don't have one. I might, well, yeah, and okay, my starting point is being prompted into proving that something can be done when somebody said it can. Okay, okay, so you'll set a problem, basically, that you try to solve through yes. fiction. Yes, the very first one I wrote was the one Scott Burdett asked me for, for Bandrill Productions, that he wanted to 
be an audio play and then they made a video of it and it's now on youtube it's called pieces of eight and it was during 2011 late 2011 or maybe early 2012 when people were starting to look forward to the 50th anniversary and the big conversation was there was one tranche of fans who said every extant doctor had to be in the 50th anniversary or else the 50th anniversary wasn't worth diddly squat and another tranche of fans said no, that's absolutely ridiculous. You can't get Colin Baker into a girdle and on screen. So only the recent Doctors can be in it. And <clears throat> and I wanted to prove that, because this was a, a, a... Oh, I can't remember the expression for it off the top of my head. It was a black and white thing. There was yeah. one bunch of fans saying, no, only this can be the case. And there was another bunch of fans <laughs> saying, no, only this can be the case. And I just happened to pick a side so- and say, right, Here's how you could do it. And I wrote Pieces of Eight as a way of recasting the first three Doctors who were dead and having the next five Doctors who were all so much older than they had been in a story in which you could get away with all those things. So it's, it's in that sense, your fan fiction was an extension of the debates that you'd been having yeah. about the series itself. Well, but also yeah. using a problem and trying to solve it. So you'd be quite good at writing something like a crime mystery or a murder mystery. Because you'd come up with the final, like a locked room mystery, and then you'd work out a way. Yeah, but my problem is I don't get inspired to do it unless somebody prompts no, me no, into having that issue. But this, but once it's happened, you have to get the inspiration. So my inspiration is I need, I need somebody to prompt me into doing it. I think, but I also need to, them to give me certain stylistic starting points. So with, I mean, and I've written very little fan fiction. I've written for. Uh, what was it called? Seasons of War. Mm. Um, and my starting point for that was the seasons bit, because that originally was what, was what the dividing points was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as soon as you start thinking about seasons, you start thinking, which season would I set it in? What are the defining characteristics of autumn? What monsters would possibly work in autumn? So you use that as a launching point. And, and then, my... you, then you start to get, then you start to get sort of, this. I started to get discrete images coming into my head that I then tried to link with a story and the story developed out of trying to link these set pieces these image based set pieces within the story so the Brigadier so you're saying you basically wrote Terror of the Autons oh yes yeah probably not as elegantly as Robert Holmes did (laughs) but but yeah who does but it's not but no not really because Terror of the Autons isn't a series of image based set pieces it's a series of narrative based set pieces so it's a series of episodic incidents. This is more. This is more. Yeah. I had the vision of the brigadier dying in his chair in a nursing home, because that's what we saw briefly in the television story. So I knew I wanted to bring that in because that's the brigadier in the autumn of his life, or the winter of his life, in fact. And I wanted to tie that in with the the war doctor. And so yeah. That was okay. My so what mm. I find more interesting then is Simon. Where do you get your inspiration yeah. from? Because I get prompted into mine. Matt's just said about his. Yeah, I have to be asked before I start writing something. I've got to have a project. Yeah, but but, but my viewpoint on these things is I, I avoid a lot of those things that have been listed in fan fiction like The Plague. Mm-hmm. My my viewpoint, and for some reason it's very important for me to be to write something which could be what I guess is canon now. I have to treat it so that it would fit in... Yeah, you, you don't want to write something that looks like fan fiction. No, no. no. But it's not get... because I'm trying to be treated treated like it's official. I just... 
back back in the days when I was learning to draw, you know, and I was doing all my Star Wars artwork, I would get so uptight if the characters didn't look like the actors. Mm. It had to look like it was part of it. But where do you get the inspiration for your conceits within your stories? Uh, because like we said, mine, the conceit is always a way of solving an external problem that somebody's mm. prompted me into wanting to solve. I try and think of something that makes my brain hurt a little bit. Do you look at what's happening in the world and try to... Because you yeah, wrote a story that kind of mapped onto... I'm just on trying to, to think. I'm just trying to think of some poli- politics. Because or... I'll give you another example of what I do. And mm. again, this will illustrate the same thing. Mm. In Seasons of War, one of the early things we talked about is that there was going to be a mini-arc within the book where the Earth was removed. Mm. And so the problem I gave myself there was, what if the Doctor went back to the Earth and it wasn't there? And so it wasn't so much solving a problem but as being prompted into looking at an issue. Mm. So that story, my story in Seasons of War, mm. was inspired by what would happen mm. if the Doctor landed on the Earth and mm. the Earth wasn't there. How weird, because that's the same thing happens in my story. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> Very different. But you know what I mean? Yeah. And all yeah. everything that happens in that story, yeah. all the characters are in it, are all based upon the idea mm. that they're what's been left behind when reality has been removed. Mm. And I was I was the same. I was very aware that what I was writing, I didn't want to sound like fan fiction. Mm. But I think with those categories, they are the extremes mm. of each category. I think normal fan or good fan fiction blurs the lines between them or it takes yeah, yeah. an individual category and disguises it quite effectively. Well, mm. I got... And nice. the, the, most, <laughs> the most depressing thing is the, that... That, as you said, Fifty Shades of Grey is fan fiction that successfully blurred mm-hmm. blurred the lines yeah. between the original source, but it's it's awful, but it's incredibly successful. I've never and read it's become, it, so I wouldn't know. I've read it, and it's really bad. Yeah. There's a certain it's not, of it's not erotic. It's not pornographic. It's I, just badly written. Fifty Shades of Grey start life with the Twilight. name of the characters being the same as yeah. in the television, and then when it got published, they changed the name of the mm. characters. Well, That's was, what happened. It, was, it started life. With the same characters as the television series, it was an eroticization. As the books, rather not television yeah, series. Yeah, it was an eroticization of the Twilight books. Yeah, but I wonder if the original, because originally it was published online, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think. That so was... when it was online, were they called? What are they called? Bella and uh, Sebastian. <laughs> no, I no, um, no. I can't remember. Bella. Oh, and um. Uh, Edward, 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 Cullen? yes, Edward, Edward, yes. So in the very Edward. first edition of that book online, they're Bella and Edward, I'm so and sorry. then when it becomes really popular and so many people log on, yeah. they decide to publish it, and so they change the names. Yeah. What I'm saying is, <clears throat> was there a first edition where they were Bella and Edward, and when they changed the character names, is that literally all they did, or did they have to take a bunch of other stuff? Oh, out no, they, they, they must have. Well. They'd have changed the vampires. They, yeah, they would have cha- they'd have taken everything out. So she would have she would have changed well, yeah, the setting I mean. scenario. Yeah, yeah, but, no, but, I mean things like the town where it's set and stuff, that changes with the character names. Yeah. But I'm I'm wondering if there's anything fundamental in that story that's different, or whether that was just the well, story I think she actually, wrote. Actually what she did was she bled out all the character not the characters, but the character from the original story that made it so distinctive. And created one thing about Fifty Shades of Grey is it's badly written, but it's also really bland. The characters are one-dimensional, and they exist in a one-dimensional place doing one-dimensional things. I and, if... and that's because she's 
written something based on quite a rich text and she's taken all the richness out and all she's what left she's is done the, the is fundamentals of it. But what she's done by the sound of it, not having read it, but it sounds like nine and a half weeks, which is, well, as a film, it's underrated. I think it's a very good film, actually. Mm, yeah. But also, nine and a half weeks is a film that excludes hardly almost everything about the background of the characters who are in it. But it really works because of the way it's done. Yeah. But it sounds like she's done a version of that that really doesn't work. Yeah, but without personality. Yeah. And well, there's not a lot of characters. personality in Nine and a Half Weeks because it really strips back both Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger yeah. to just what they do on screen. You don't really well, learn same, anything else. It's the same as them. Last Tango in Paris as well. So there is yeah, a sort of a, yeah, strand, yeah, yeah. a strand of films that basically basically just treats these characters as physical objects. Well, it's kind of but the film the version of... What are the names for these things? Dogging? That's an expression for something people do, isn't it? Where you oh. drive up to a... <laughs> oh, <we>, next subject. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the name of some... I see, I don't really... If I ever knew about the, these things, so the they're process, gone from my the brain. The process of dogging is where... Is where um, a bunch ladies, of strangers. Ladies and gentlemen go to car parks in uh, transit vans and engage in adult activities in the back of transit vans with, with strange strangers, with strangers yeah. yes who with, they with don't other people watching. as i understand it oh, with other people watching oh, yeah they watching watch. or, oh. or engaging apparently engaging or watching yeah, yeah. Some oh, engage, okay. some watch. yeah. Well, i wasn't aware of that but the important thing in the context which i brought it up is that you don't get to find out who they are yeah that's so there's even a, there's a nat- an, 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 an anonymity yeah, which is yeah. part of the free song and that is which essentially does, sort of he said free song not threesome which free which song. Oddly, but conceptually that's basically what last tango in paris in nine and a half weeks and uh 50 shades of gray are doing well, isn't od- it oddly 50 shades of gray i think it tries to touch on that but because it's written from the first person from the point of view of the female character oh, is it? and she describes everything in really kind of florid romanticized oh. terms actually you get the opposite she's very unanonymous and he's yeah, just bland and the sequel that she's writing now is 50 shades of grey from his perspective so that's she's going to completely book in the series because i think fourth there is was, it? it's a trilogy and now this is a this is a fourth book set during the same time well all i can say is matt knows rather more about this than i I've read what i read one book it's bad i've read dan brown as well he's bad Oh yeah, I didn't get through the Da Vinci Code. Oh, I did. I got through, I got through, through it that. because it's designed to drive you through it, right? Without cliffhangers and yeah. I but didn't with... dislike the film. I wouldn't say it was a really good film or anything like that, but I didn't dislike it. No. Have any the of you film read? Is probably better than the book. Have any of you read Tom Clancy? Uh, no, I've tried. It's very. The dense. thing about Tom Clancy is. And essentially, because being more of a film fan at this point in my life than a book fan, I experienced those stories through the films. Mm. Whereas with a lot of other things, I've read the books first and then found the films afterwards. But the Tom Clancy's, I've never read any of the books, Mm. but I think I've pretty much seen all the films that were based on those books. Mm -hmm. And you can tell in all of those films that the text that they're taken from is probably about as good as the text that all the others are taken from. Yeah. But some of those films are really bad and really unengaging. Right. Whereas others 
the firm, for example, the firm, the Pelican Brief. Oh, you're, um, you're talking about John Grisham. Oh, am I? Yes, sorry. What did I say? Uh, Tom, Tom Clancy, Clancy is, uh, Jack Yeah, Ryan. no, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, John Grisham's. Oh, I've read about. John Grisham books. Yeah. But are the books any good? The books are quite good. Yeah, the books are quite I got sort the of feeling... tight and, and they're quite efficiently written. But, I, but how did some of those... I mean, um, Robert Altman, I can't, The Gingerbread Man, dreadful film. Well, Coppola directed one as well. Uh, the Rainmaker, and yeah. that was pretty awful yeah. too. Yeah, The Firm was quite good. The Firm was good, The Pelican Brief was good, and A yeah. Time to Kill was good, Yeah, which is Joel Schumacher. But the others... Joel Schumacher actually did two, and the first one he did... I can't remember which one it was. It was okay, but the second one was a lot mm. better at Time to Kill. Yeah. The Matthew McConaughey one. Yes. That yeah. now imagine she's white. Right. Yes. Yeah. But huh. is it now imagine she's white or now imagine she's black? It's been years since I've seen it, but you know the scene I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a killer scene. Yes. Real hairs on the back of your neck when it comes to that. And that's Matthew McConaughey. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> in a film directed by Joel Schumacher. Who would have ever thought? Well, Joel Schumacher is odd that he's written some really, or he's directed some really kind of dark, moody, kind of, he wrote one called 8mm or something mm. like that. Do you mm. ever see that? Um, yeah, that's Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Yeah. And that's quite, I mean, it's a horrible film, but it's really brutal. But as soon as he was given a superhero movie, Partly because he was told to make it different from Tim Burton. So he went completely... And see, sick. I think Batman Forever is the best of those Batman films. I like Batman Forever. <sighs> Which one's Batman Forever? Is that the Val the Kilmer one? It's the Val Kilmer one, yeah. <laughs> what was the... Oh, the other one's George Clooney, Batman and yeah, Robin. Batman and Robin. Robin. <sighs> Batman and Robin's appalling, but yeah, Batman yeah, Forever yeah. is... Batman and Re- Batman Forever is better than yeah, Batman. Yeah, but do you know what's really funny about Batman and Robin? And I watched that and I thought when I was watching it, I was thinking this is the nearest thing to a movie version of one of the early comic strips. I love the really Technicolor. Yeah. You know, there was lots of shots of them going up the side of the, you know, much like the sixties TV series. Yes. Yeah. So in that respect, I thought it was quite successful. Yeah. Although it was a part of I hated the TV series. But the Tim Burton yeah. ones were yeah, too dark. They're not anything like no. the... Um, no, they're the his own vision of, of what... Chris Nolan ones, mm. but I don't I don't think the Tim Burton ones are Batman films. No. no. They're just... They're something else, but I don't especially like... I've always found the thing about Tim Burton films is that they completely lack any emotional engagement. Yeah. But you don't... You think that's about... That's your opinion of Chris Nolan as well? Yeah. Yeah. Have you the, a lot of people are in the, of the opinion that the uh, Dark Knight films, not so much Dark Knight, the one after it, Dark Knight Rises, Dark Knight, yeah, yeah, Dark Knight Rises. yeah I've not seen it, really, I've not seen it, yeah, because I can't bear the dark and gritty oh, stuff. People know I love, it. well, I don't, I love it, but not because it's dark and gritty, but because I think actually it's it's not as dark and gritty as no. it seems. It's it's set in what looks like a real place. Which yeah, is but it shouldn't good. be. It's a comic strip. Yeah, I think no. I think that's a. It's a. It's a. I, I, it's I can't bear the, the blanket thing. I was talking the other in the last episode we recorded about the blanket thing where they, oh that worked. So let's apply it to everything. So this is why you end up with Suicide Squad and stuff like that. You yes. Know, as it, as if that suddenly it gets treated seriously think, and everyone's going to suddenly take I it think seriously. Zach, Zach Snyder has taken what Chris Nolan did. Yeah. And corrupted it. Because he's gone down the wrong route with it, I mm, think he's mm. extended a particular route. I think the Dark Knight is one of 
the best movies. One of the viewpoints I heard, possibly even from Lee, was that one of the films, I think it was possibly the second one, could have been a film about crime as opposed to a Batman film. Yeah. Take yes. Batman out, yeah. it would have still been the same film. Yeah. But so what's the point? But I, mm. but for me, that's what Batman is. Batman is a dete- he's not a superhero. He's a detective. Yeah, and I mean that's where my taste comes into it because I don't see the point of superhero. Mar- you're more of a Marvel. Well, yeah, yeah but, but why is the point of superhero? Yeah, if he's just a bloke in a suit, but he's because he's not. Which a is probably why I like the '60s series because I just think well, he's a bloke in a bat suit. Yeah. So therefore, it's a little bit ridiculous. But I think but, the idea is, and I'm not a big Marvel DC. I don't have a lot mm. of knowledge, but Batman isn't a superhero. He's a detective. Okay, yeah. But he doesn't in do detective, any detective stories. Does he? Well, he doesn't have any superpowers. No. But so he's got a utility belt. No, no, that's exactly what he does do. So he has even in the even in the, so the TV, TV with TV series, he has a Batcave with a crime computer in it that he de- looks at clues. So he does do this kind of mm. detecting, but that's kind of lost because the Marvel side, the Spider-Man and the Superman, it sort of eclipsed it. Mm. But Batman is a character who detects crimes and investigates them. And then, but he's a vigilante detective, which is where he differs from someone like Sherlock Holmes. He then beats them up, although Sherlock Holmes does that a surprising amount as well. Mm, mm. But we're sort of off the subject of... Uh, Doesn't matter, it's okay. a blue box podcast. <laughs> does... See, because I was never a fan of the comics either. Does Batman... And it doesn't give him superpowers, but what gives him the idea to dress up? Does he not get bitten by a bat or something? No, he see a bat comes through his window, doesn't it? When he's a yeah, child. he's psychologically scarred by it, ah, okay. and then trained by. And I I know mostly through the Christopher Nolan films and a few comic books, but he gets trained by ninjas. The yeah, that wasn't in the original. I don't know. I think he trained himself in the original. Yeah, he was yeah. just so he was rich anyway. Well, yeah, I think the original just that. probably went from childhood trauma mm. to bat. To adult vigilante, but it was he was a it was a it was more of a it was gadgets. Thing. It was like um, gadgets. Yeah, he, that's what it yeah, was. He was a billionaire detective who or a millionaire yeah. detective so he who was able to afford. So his superpower was being able to afford widgets. all these ridiculous gadgets. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you look at Iron Man. Yeah, Iron Man's Man's the same similar situation. situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's built this suit. Except the way they've made it a little bit more is is that he had a injury on his heart, the mm. shrapnel near the centre of his heart or near an artery or something like that and he creates this electromagnet that he implants into himself mm-hmm. which yes. keeps those splinters away from his heart Yeah. therefore he becomes at one with the technology mm-hmm. Yeah. and that's the difference mm. isn't it right back onto the subject of fans mm. okay. ok here's a random question I'll just throw in out of nowhere is there anything that it's not acceptable to do or be as a fan are the lines more as that... a person, isn't it, as opposed to a fan? Is there yeah, any... but I mean, do you mean morally acceptable or something that stops you from become being defined? As no, a... I mean morally. Well, well, and I don't mean morally, but I mean that's yeah. The question you're asking is: is there other things that, as a fan, you think it's acceptable to do that actually that's not the case? And I don't mean in a sort of breaking the law kind of a way, but I mean other things that you would do as a fan. That probably with a greater bit of thought about it, you perhaps wouldn't. I think one of the things about being a fan nowadays is you tend to be on, you your voice tends to be heard across a greater area than it used to be because we've got social media. Mm. So you have to be, I think you have to be 
I think the rules you have of to poli- self-police, don't or you? Or the rules of politeness mm. exist as they did before, except you have to be even more careful because Stephen Moffat could read what you put on Facebook. I mean, well, a lot of it's very, it's very unlikely. And actually, you know, criticism is. I mean, in the one way, personal. There's a difference between criticism and personal insult. That's not really what I was getting at, though, because there is a conversation to be had about social media. I suppose the thing that prompted my question is there were all these pictures the other day of Famke Janssen at a convention. Oh, yeah. And the rules of conventions have always been you do not touch the celebrities unless invited to do so. Mm. You don't run up to Johnny Depp and hug him just because he's there, because otherwise 15,000 people are going to do the same thing, at the end of which he's going to have suffocated. Yeah. But because of a certain volume of incidents last year, this year at events, people are starting to police this more closely. Yeah. So you got to the point at which, at the recent Comic-Con in... Was it San Diego Comic-Con where Mm -hmm. this happened? I think it was. And you've got pictures of... um, Michelle Gomez posing with probably, in some cases, exactly the same people as Famke Janssen. And in the Famke Janssen pictures, you've got her (laughs) sitting at one side of the bench and the fans sitting (laughs) at the other side, basically, with, you know, a gap between them, Mm. basically. And in the Michelle Gomez ones, you've got her draped all over these fans doing master poses. Yes. Because Michelle Gomez has chosen to engage with the people she was being photographed with in a more physical way, Whereas Famke Janssen, and for all we know, this wasn't her choice, but she was just, for all we know, she was told at the start of the thing, they're not allowed to touch her, and she maybe hasn't done many of these things and didn't realise yeah. that there was anything. She might not have been well. Yeah, yeah so, so you've got all these awkward looking pictures of her that might not actually be anybody's fault. But what it comes down to is, I'm asking, is it acceptable as a fan to run up to Tom Baker and give him this great big belly hug? And not just that specifically, but things like that. Is it, is it acceptable to write letters to people or get in touch with people in some other way and say, you're a right bastard, you killed the fifth doctor or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. it isn't. No. It links but, up it's, this it's thing not... of cosplay at the moment, isn't it? You've got this, this slogan that's going around of cosplay isn't consent. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing. It's... Yeah, it doesn't give you the right to invade somebody's personal space. Yeah, unless invited. But there's a line there, isn't there? Because mm. if because if somebody goes in cosplay, they've gone there to be noticed, mm. and they are not inherently a celebrity in their own right. <laughs> I think it's the sexualizing rather than. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But what I'm mm. saying is, it's a really tricky one to understand what that line is yeah i mean unless the line is literally you don't touch somebody unless you've been invited to do so because i mean that's black and white yeah but then you get things like the weird and awkward situation with fabka jansen and obviously it's, if somebody's in cosplay you can't just run up to them and it's kind of like very similar avril lavigne pictures around there as well other which are hilarious yeah oh, really? it's kind of like life that there is there's certain things that are sort of moral relativism but there are certain things that you know aren't appropriate. If you're walking down the street, you but, just you just avoid it. I don't think it's appropriate to go and hug Tom Baker because he might fall apart. Um, but you can certainly approach Tom Baker and ask for an autograph. I think that's and there's no there's no kind of defined list of rules. You just 
you just know mm. what to do. I mean, actually, if I was walking down the street well, and I, thing, I saw Tom it? Baker, I would actually probably cross over the road and walk on the other side because I'm hyper paranoid about them thinking that they're being watched. Um, I don't like approaching celebrities. I feel very awkward approaching celebrities, even at conventions that I've mm, been to. Mm. I felt really apologetic if I'm in line asking them for an autograph. I can't talk to anybody because except I writers. Can't do the lining up yeah, thing. I can't. I can't do the lining up thing for, yeah. because oh, for yeah, me, no. even even it's though making being, a connection, even though being an actor, it's their job to be, as you say, it's their job to be noticed. It's their job to be recognised. But this is but the I still difference. feel really awkward in in that. But this is the weird difference with the cosplayers. Is that, and and also there's an age thing as well that comes in here. Because if you go to a family convention, you're going to have five year olds dressed up as, mm. you know, David Tennant or whatever. Mm. They see somebody dressed up as Billy Piper, they're going to run over and give that person a hug, aren't they? Mm. At what age does it become inappropriate? Mm. I'm not saying. By the way, I'm not trying to justify <laughs> people running You're up and paving your I'm way just, to the, yeah, Man- the Manchester just, Convention. Just, no, no, no. But what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, because all these things are happening, because you can walk into a room where you've got Tom mm. Baker and 15 other people dressed as Tom Baker. Yeah. What I'm saying is, all these lines of not the lines that you obviously shouldn't cross. Yeah. You obviously. You know, you walk up to Tom Baker, you ask him if you can shake his hand. You don't just yes, thrust yeah. your hand into yeah, his. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, there's, uh, you know, what do you say to a cosplayer? Nice costume, sure, but I mean, 35 times in a day, you don't just say nice costume. Or do you? Well, I think I think the consent is the is the key word. So, if well, that's you're, the if you're, in, if you're interested in somebody's costume mm. and you want to take a photograph or you want to take a photograph with that that's person, probably the biggest charge. You ask, now, you ask them permission. I'm talking about somebody in cosplay. Yeah. So. No, cosplay is charged now. Okay. Well, they it's like, yeah. They're, they're just walking around the... I don't know. Some cosplayers make four, five, six-figure sums at certain conventions. Maybe the professional, they're professional cosplayers. They're not copyrighted things. Yeah. There's also a different sort. Of, there's different levels of convention, are there not? That so something like San Diego Comic Con is the the massive. It's almost like a trade show. Convention. Yeah, yeah. But then you have the conventions where you just meet the actors in the pub. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that actually, every cosplayer actually, would charge you, but I'm saying depe- no. But it depends on the environment as well. I think. And mm. the, but the there are cosplayers now who would deliberately okay. go to places in order to make money. Fair enough. I mean, if, but as Simon yeah. says, that's a copyrighted costume. Yeah, yeah. We we with one of our events, there was um there was a a chap. Yeah, yeah. Who was playing a character, and we asked whether they'd like to come along to sort of add to the atmosphere and all that sort of thing. And um, yeah, wanted paying, which I I as an artist, I understand completely where he's coming from. Is in as much as you know, you invest time and all that sort of thing. But then you think. Yeah, but that's off the back of somebody else's somebody costume else's design property. and somebody else's yeah. story concepts and somebody else's acting ability mm. and all these kind of things. It's, it's very tr- it's tricky because I, you know it, that that starts to raise the question of what copyright law includes. If if they turned if, around and said, "Well, we'll do it if you can give so much money to this charity or something like that," then yeah. I think, yeah, absolutely, yeah. that's that's a yeah. way of saying thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's a. Well, that's what the fifty is. Area, the fifty-first Legion, the Star Trek, yeah, the Star Wars. 
Yes. Stormtroopers, they're a charity organisation, aren't Definitely, they? Definitely, so yeah. yeah. And that's a really kind of noble... And that, good, I think, yeah. is a lovely aspect of that. Yeah. That is yeah. A, it's a real ball of positive yeah. energy. Whereas if, if they're dressing up, it's a bit like they're a clown coming to a mm. child's party. Mm. At that sort of level, they're children's entertainers. Mm. Which I suppose is, 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 is it's all right, I suppose. But, well, it depends how yeah. they're dressing up. Cause some yes. of them are very much adults' entertainers. Well, that's like strippers, then, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. But, yes. Well, we've well, covered, we've covered, right. we've covered dogging, we've covered strippers, we've covered Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Blue Box podcast. But there you go, then. Is that acceptable to dress as a Cyberman, go to a convention and charge people to have their photograph taken with you if none of that money is going back to the BBC or whatever? Yeah, I think so. Do you? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know whether it's legal or not. I know I think I the, the legality so. would be the important thing. I wouldn't have thought it would. It depends be how you look at it because does the BBC look at that as a, as a form of promotion? Because it, it is, isn't it? It, it? It's very very tricky. It's like home taping, isn't it? Yeah. It's like home taping and music. There's well, it's some, obviously something with the opinion well, of that's well, a way. It's of... like wearing a t-shirt with a Cyberman on it. Mm. You're allowed to do that. Mm. Mm. Whether yes, you're but you don't charge people to take a photograph of your Cyberman t-shirt. No. That's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure I'd ever actually pay to have my photograph. No. That's probably more of the <laughs> more of the question. Mm. Is who would... I suppose if you've got children. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But then I still wouldn't pay if somebody... I wouldn't pay for a celebrity to have a photograph taken with a celebrity because then I'd just end up with a photograph and I'm not really interested in... I'd That's rather get... I, say, I, get auto- connection, I like it? getting autographs. Yeah, but mm. some people love it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I, but I can fully understand paying money to. But I'm not. I don't know how often this thing happens. I just know it yeah. does. And these people, I saw a feature where cosplayers were talking about making thousands and thousands of dollars from convention appearances, mm. which is kind of a curious one. I mean, it is amazing. It's become a. Yeah, it's a creative. It's like a lot of things, thing, isn't yeah. it? In this age of multimedia mm. which i think in spite of the fact that you don't need multimedia to be a cosplayer i think the fact that we live in a multimedia age is what has not given rise to all of these things but that has helped to define these things for the new age it's like the x factor is basically an old format that's been going as long as television probably as long as stage really mm. There's been talent competitions probably for, for centuries. Yeah. 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 So the X Factor is just the latest variety competition. Mm-hmm. So things like cosplaying. It's 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 interesting the way it's evolved. I mean, the last convention I went to, the the thing I came away from for the very first time I thought actually be quite a laugh going there in a costume. But that's because I started experiencing the performance aspect. Because some of the better ones it wasn't just the outfit. They were actually literally staying in role as they were going around. <laughs> I mean, you always end up with four or five Captain Jack Sparrows. But yeah. but but there are other ones where they literally... Quite obscure characters. And they literally... And, and so you end up getting this kind of almost like Disneyland feel. feel. It's also brilliant because they also twist the characters. So you get yeah. female doctors, which, mm, which is really inventive. And yeah. it's, it's yeah. one creative outlet that certainly I couldn't 
I couldn't do. It's mm. not. Mm. It's not the sort of thing that I would be capable of doing. Mm. You couldn't I, play a female doctor, Matt. Because is that I what you're d- saying because for for <laughs> instance, I don't have the creative skill to do it. I don't have the breast. I don't have the creative skill to do it, and I don't have the 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 actual sort of outgoing mm. ability to mm. to have the guts to do it. So yeah, you aren't um, extrovert enough. Not for that. No, I'm too tall. Well, that doesn't stop you. Tall, pe- tall people tend to not want to be noticed. Well, I'm short, and uh, I don't want to be noticed either. Well, yeah. <laughs> Again, it's not an either or. What do you mean? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, don't know. Are we going to make any conclusions here, or are we going to leave it with the conclusions think, no, that think, we failed to make in the first half an hour? I no, I think we made conclusions that it was debatable. <laughs> I think we we started touching on I. I wondered whether there is a word, the word possession is an interesting one as far as fandom's concerned, because again, that's a big spectrum, is whether when somebody decides to be a fan, they take a certain amount of possession of the thing, that it becomes part of their life and part of their life choices. And you get that big gap between somebody who who feels like they have a connection with the programme, or, you know, Doctor Who, for instance, <clears throat> and then you get those who have who take the possession to the point where if somebody steps outside their idea of what that thing should be, that that starts being a problem. It's when they take ownership to another level. Mm. It's I think there's a difference between ownership and possession, okay. with a capital P, possibly. It's when you start coveting items and you start fetishising. No, he's not talking about priority. possessing things. He's talking about possessing the thing. He means Pro. ownership. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Possessing the series. Yeah, it's, taking yeah. ownership in okay. the way you're... Okay. In as much as, you know, say, for instance, when the new series came out, there was a swathe of... People who said that it should do this and it shouldn't do that. should do that, okay. yeah. And yeah, these yeah. new fans yeah. who who don't even know the classic series existed, they're not, yeah. they're not true fans. So there we go. There's well, that's another... a, it's an extension of conservatism, basically. Is there's a certain mentality that is very traditionally based mm. and is very conservative with a small and sometimes with a big C. Mm. It's not always conservatism because some of this... Because some of these people don't think it goes far enough. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, yeah. A lot of, by and large, probably about ninety percent is very conservative. But yeah. the actual thing itself isn't doesn't necessarily have to be conservative in nature, because basically it is just about these people. And this is just a tiny fraction of fandom, but there are people who think they have a better idea of what the program should be than the program does itself. Yeah. Again, that relates to the football thing. I always think. I yeah, there are fans really who, strongly, and it's not always. I think I know better than the showrunner, but it's but within there somewhere, there's a small pra- fraction of these people that obviously thinks not just I know better than the showrunner, but I know better than the show. Yeah, mm. and this is and you say like as you say in football, it's not always I know better than the manager, but it's I know better than well, the it's, team. It's yeah. it's a symptom of having so. As a fan, you'd have a huge amount. You'd normally have a lot of knowledge of the program, but it's how you deal with that knowledge and it's how you express that knowledge. And some people use that knowledge and expand it outwards and let it. They let it grow. Mm. Some people take that knowledge and they confine it and they see it as the way that it should be. But and I... then, if it's anything other than they they think it should be, then it causes them anxiety. But I think what it comes out of is that if you have devoted time, energy, money, whatever, if you have given something 
than you expect. Because it's the thing, when it goes in, it's giving you something that you want to take part in. And then you give something back, which is time, energy, money, whatever. Mm. And when you start giving back, there becomes a point at which you're thinking, I'm giving, it should be giving me what I want. Mm. There's a point at which it goes from being, you're happy with what it's given you, to you expect it to give you what you want because you have now sort of proactively gone into a process of giving to it as well. So you're expecting it to be a two-way street at this point, whereas what it actually is is a one-way street and another one-way street. And it's made, but it's not a two-way street. And it's all the more it's all the more um, pertinent in the new series because of that gap in the middle where fans believe that they kept the series alive, not <clears throat> rightly or wrongly. That's so they believed that that period in the nineteen nineties was when it flipped from being a BBC property to, to being a fan, a fan property. property because mm. they mm. kept it alive. Mm. So now and we've even... got this kind of almost a co-production between. Well, we have got a co-production between fandom and the BBC, but we've got that because the creators are fans. Mm. But it's also with the body of fandom as well. But even so if fandom kept hadn't kept it alive for those fifteen years. I think that gap would still have been enough to make people think that way because once you have a gap, mm. you have a point at which it returns and the point at which it returns is the point at which anybody who kind of has a latent aptitude or whatever, a latent potential for this two-way street as opposed to two one-way streets thing, yeah. that gap is going to be the point at which that two-way street idea beds in, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, when it yeah, returns. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, but you're talking, I think in that you're talking about a tiny fraction of fans for whom yeah. that's been triggered. Yeah. But I think, again, that's probably something that's latent in all of us because I think uh, while only a small fraction of fans think that should be the case, I think everybody looks at a program and thinks that bit of that could be better. Mm. Oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a story that did this? Or I'd like to see such and such a character come back. And while mm, the majority of people might not think it's realistic that that should actually influence what happens in the programme, almost all of us think that. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying at the very start, Matt, all, almost all of us think, oh, I'd like to see such and such a character or whatever. Yeah. And that's the latency in the notion that, you know, you might end up thinking, well... I know better than they do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a that's a thing that happens with fans, I guess. That touches on an interesting thing what we were saying about with um with uh fan fiction. There's there's when you when you ask a bunch of fans what would you like to see in the new series? And then you get suggestions like I don't know, the Rani always comes up. Or or something mm. even more obscure than that, I'd like to see I don't know. The Crotons. Yeah, or um yeah, yeah, just, just really obscure stuff, and then you think, well, if you were, and they, and they talk very almost expertly about it, and you think, well, if you really were running the show, is that something that you would put in front of the general public? No, it isn't. No, because they're not professionals. No, so there there has to be this. It has to be a co-production between fandom and the BBC, mm. and by which I mean the individuals. So Stephen Moffat is fan and BBC in one mm. and Russell T Davis is fan and BBC in one BBC being a television expert mm. and a Doctor Who expert mm. Mm. and you have to have both so the newest you get to it is things like the, the Macra in um... yeah 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 touches 
Yeah, and throw away references to uh, the Dravins in the Pandora <laughs> Yeah, and throw, throw them a bone. You I've know, got, I've got one more point. And this I, ha- don't, I think just before okay. you go on to a mm-hmm. last point, the idea of the Fanner showrunner is an interesting one. Yeah, because I think, because I think, there there are two things going on there. One, oh, there are three things going on there. One is that being a fan and being the showrunner allows you the room to put in the things that you want. But being a showrunner and being a fan allows you, or should, in the best cases, and in the two that we've seen, I think it's true, allows the the objectivity to say, okay, if we're going to have a returning Time Lord, it has to be the Master and it can't be the Rani and it can't be the Time Meddler because that wouldn't mean anything. And it doesn't actually necessarily matter whether the new fans have heard or the mas- heard of the master or not, but if you're going to do a returning time lord, you just do a returning time lord. Yeah. Yeah. You don't do a returning time lord and then another returning time lord and then a different returning time lord again. Yeah. You just do one mm. because uh, and you know just to go off a slight tangent, when the Rani turned up, she wasn't a returning time lord, no. and when the time meddler turned up. He wasn't a returning Time Lord. They were just characters in the programme at that point. Mm. When it becomes a returning Time Lord, it's the fact that it's a Time Lord returning that is the conceit, not who it is. So the fact that it's always the Master is just because that's what... That that is the symbol for the conceit. Mm. But the third point I was going to say, and I've forgotten what it was now, so I'm going to have to try and think back, is that being the showrunner... No, it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no 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 there was something I was going to say being the showrunner and running the show I said the first thing is it allows you to put in the things that you want yeah. the second thing is it gives you the objectivity to not put in the things you want and the third point is it gives you an overview of the whole picture mm. so that you understand more than because people you are do what's saying, right for the show as an entity as opposed to well no but no different point really right. you do what's right for the show because you love it but no I've, people have said oh bring in somebody who's not a Doctor Who fan and I'm saying no don't do that because they wouldn't understand what it is that makes the show work they might be able to make a very successful version of Doctor Who but mm. if they're not a Doctor Who fan or at least somebody who knows Doctor Who, yeah. then they're not going to understand what it is about Doctor well, Who. Sometimes that's... they quite often do bring in a non-Doctor Who. I mean, that's what so Julie Gardner in the original series initially uh, wasn't, and and she sort of the balance, I just, yeah, and and also, um, but, but that person still would embrace it. Like Matt Smith yeah, came yeah, in, yeah. knew nothing about Doctor Who, yeah, and embraced but, but it. Yeah. Julie Gardner's the balance for Russell T Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, mm. yeah. Whereas if if it had been Julie Gardner making it by herself. Yes, yes. Without Russell no, no, T. Davis, yeah. we wouldn't have ended no. up with Doctor Who. Mm, mm. I mean, it's arguments for and against I mean, if you look at J.J. Abrams with the Star Trek movies. I mean, you and me, we like those movies, don't yes, we? Yes, yeah. Um, but are they great Star Trek movies? I'm I don't not think con- they're thought of as great Star Trek movies. I don't movies. think no. they're, they're not thought of as great Star Trek movies. They're just better movies than the Star Trek movies were. I, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Different, well, different. They're good, yes. they're good movies. Yeah, they're they certainly better be than the last next gen Star movies, Trek movies for people who don't like Star Trek. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, because he wasn't a Star Trek fan. Yeah. But that's a different thing because he's rebooted it rather than carrying it on. He's done an alternative mm-hmm. version of it. Mm. If it had been just carrying it on instead, he might have been the wrong guy to do. And then he's made the Star Wars film where he was a fan, and then people are complaining that it's too much like the old films. So. 
I have one final. Yeah, go on. My then. final point, and this isn't gone. This isn't for debate or or questioning. It's more for the twitters. Is okay, what I was saying. What I was saying downstairs. So I was talking about what your first piece of fan fiction is, and I remember watching City of Death when I was young, and then having nightmares about it. Mm. And I wonder if having a nightmare about Doctor Who constitutes fan fiction, being fan fiction. Because you're, you're making un- up a Doctor you're, Who story. You're making up a Doctor Who story, it's unconscious. Mm. But can a nightmare constitute fan fiction? And I'd rather just leave it at that. And see Are we about happens. to delve on the mountain? Well, <laughs> I love Doctor Who. Yeah, but I, I, think, do. I don't think you should leave it just at that, because you did reveal to me and uh, Simon downstairs that, that your... Yeah, you did <laughs> reveal on. that your dream of... Uh, the City of Death was that you actually got to find out what it was about Scaroth the Jaggeroth that led to Catherine Shell marrying him. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay then, I guess next time, or last time, we might have Lee with us and be talking about uh, conceptual horror in Doctor Who. I don't know what order well, these episodes well, are going to go well, out in. It sounds like we're going to spend our time explaining what conceptual horror is to Lee. <laughs> about the... God, it's not that difficult. Okay. I've got a nutshell explanation I'll give at the start. Okay. And I probably will have given it last week because we were planning to put that one out before this one, but we've recorded this one first, so who knows? But until then... I was Matt. I was Simon. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon. Bye.